And we've come to this incredible juncture from two different points of view. The first point of view, of course, is the scientific one, and this author over here spoke about the Big Bang. Yes, Mordechai. I don't know. Frustrations he has. And this, point, this book over here, of course, gives us a walking through the Big Bang itself. I'm not that concerned about it. We've already discussed it. We understand it. We know about it. Very important. And, of course, we've t- approached this from the area of the biblical as well, and we're trying to see what supports what, where does this all take us. And we last finished on this subsection over here, something called the God Beyond the God, which is the Kabbalistic way of trying to describe that which is beyond the Big Bang. Big, Big Bang be- begins with the physical universe. We want to go actually, Kabbalah wants to go actually beyond the physical universe and wants to go to try to reflect on that point in time which is known as singularity or what precedes singularity, namely the infinity of God himself. And as we travel in this pathway, we will see that there are many points of contact. My goal is, his goal is not to show how Kabbalah reflects science or science reflects Kabbalah. That may be. And we may find things that actually do in fact have points of contact. Whether it's light, darkness, infinity, all those concepts are interesting. But we're not going to really focus on that particular issue. Rather, our major issue over here is just to grow intellectually and perhaps spiritually by understanding A, the Kabbalistic view of cosmology, and B, by simply going through issues of the scientific world, which helps us to grow as well. Each discipline in and of itself is wonderful in what I believe spiritualizes and adds to our intellectual understanding as to what's going on. We ended with that nice quote above last time from Kabbalah, a blinding spark flashed within the concealed of the concealed, the mystery of the infinite, a cluster of vapor and formlessness, under the impact of breaking through one high and hidden point shown, beyond that point nothing is known, so it is called beginning. Straightforward, simple Kabbalah. Right? Good. Of course, Big Bang as well speaks about that point which begins all. Emanation proceeds as God begins to unfold to the point expands to a circle. Similarly, ever since the Big Bang, our universe has been expanding all directions. We know it's still expanding connected to the Adam Hubble. Measure speed which is moving away from us, us at 29. I will determine the farther galaxy is from us, the faster it's moving away. Now, the next paragraph which we're going to look at is just cute. I don't think it's something that we really have to really go through, but just to point it out because it is cute and gives us a good sense as to what the universe is all about. And I'm really going to go through this somewhat quickly. Imagine you are a galaxy. It sounds too grandiose and imagine you are a raisin in a batch of dough. As the dough is baked, it expands into a raisin cake. As it expands, you look out at other raisins. The more distant ones have more expanding dough between them and thus move apart faster because the dough is pushing them out. Correct? Dough is expanding. So the more dough that you have there, the more yeast in the dough, the dough is going to be pushing out faster. So the more space between you and that raisin out there, the more dough, the more expansion, the faster it moves away. Because the more faster it expands, the more you're being pushed away. Correct? Cute analogy. While nearby rates have less dough separating them and moving, and therefore they move away more slowly. From out of that point here in the Milky Way galaxy, the other guys are moving away from us and their velocity increases with distance. It's not the universe is expanding within space, Space itself is expanding, and the galaxies, like the raisins, remain the same size. So that's an interesting idea. Space itself is expanding, and the galaxies, like the raisins, remain the same size. In other words, the galaxy is the same size, but, it is ex- but the space around it, so to speak, is expanding. By current estimates, the cosmos expands 5-10% every billion years. Okay, interesting. 
Let's skip now to this next page 41 middle in Kabbalah the expansion picture number of ways for example the outcome of 43 sorry 43 divine breath quote now he's quoting to us from a simple Kabbalistic statement which comes if you want the exact page, uh, footnote from Shabbatai Donalo Sivrach Kimoni he's from the 16th century and he wrote a commentary on Sefer Yetzirah. Sefer Yetzirah, the book of creation, which is authored someplace in the 8th or 9th century, which describes creation and the notion of the words and numbers and letters and how they came about creation. Letters created in the Kabbalistic view. Good. Okay, let's see what he says. The expansion book, you know, always, quote, when the glass blower wants to produce glass where he takes an iron blowpipe hollow as a reed from one end to the other and dips it into molten glass in a crucible place the tip of the pipe in his mouth and blows and his breath passes through the pipe to the molten glass that's that end from the powder is blowing the glass expands and turns into a vessel large or small long or white so great God mighty and awesome powerfully breathed out of breath and cosmic space expanded to the boundary determined by divine wisdom until God said enough right so now we have the next question Cosmologists raised the question in what is enough? And of course, we know there's two different opinions about that. One opinion is that there's an expanding universe because there's not enough matter within the universe to pull the gravi- gravity to bring back and contract the universe, according to one opinion, which seems to now be the prevailing opinion as of a couple of weeks ago. On the other hand, there's the other notion that the universe will expand up to a certain point of energy pushing it out and then what's going to happen? It's going to contract simply because of the gravity pulling it all back into that point again and goes through the same process again, infinitely going on. In the sense of, in the other book that we had last week by Ian Barber, who called that an oscillating universe. That in that way, interestingly enough, you have both contraction and expansion, an eternal universe. That's one of the great questions that people have always asked. Is the universe eternal or not? It is both. It has creation and it's eternally, exp- how could it be? How could it be both infinitely contracting, uh, expanding, as well as have a beginning? The answer is that it, exp- it contracts to that point of singularity, then has another creation. And that's an infinite process. So the infinite universe, universe indeed is infinite, yet it does have a beginning every 20 billion years or so, whatever it may be. The failure of cosmic depends on the answer. The catalyst finds the answer in the name of the name Shaddai. Good. Expansion as part of the secret rhythm of creation. The appearance of light, the universe expanded. Next page. The consumer of light, the things that exist, will create another variety. Now, of course, this is the mystery of the creation. What else does we understand? What does that mean? He tries to explain it. When light flashed forth, time and space began. But the early universe was undifferentiated blend of energy and matter. Had the matter emerged? The mystics write that light was concealed. Science would say that energy congealed. Matter is frozen energy. No nucleus or atom could form until some energy cooled down sufficiently that could be bound and bundled into stable particles of matter. Okay, so Einstein, equivalence of mass and energy, we know this. Mass is simply from energy, but simply energy that is similar to a particular pattern. Matter is energy tangible form, we know. Both of different states of single continuum, different names of two forms of the same thing. Now we have Nabi Moshe Kodovero, Ramak, 16th century, contemporary, old contemporary, slightly 
of Rabbi Yosef Cairo, Tzfat, Kabbalist. What does he say? Do not say this is a stone and not God. What does he mean by that? Do not say this is a stone and not God. So what does he mean? Okay. So does he, is he saying to me that the stone is God? God's within the stone. But of course, I know what you're saying and I hear you saying it, but I can't buy it. My prejudice in this regard is I can't be... To me, that's pantheism. And it means that God is everything. No, there's something, some truth beyond what you just said. Even if I'm willing to say that God is imminently and infinitely imminent, okay, what does that mean? So I can't accept that God is, is, is everything within and also transcendent without. And that's my limitation because, again... That's what we said to last week. God is both transcendent and imminent. How could it be? That's fine. See, and on certain times I'm happy with that infinitely paradoxical statement. Both transcendent and imminent at the same time. A and non-A at the same time. At certain times I almost grasp that and say, yes, that makes sense to me. Other times it doesn't. Your formulation of the stone is God didn't ring true, doesn't make me happy. I can't buy it. Sorry? Certainly the stone is not God. Okay. Because God is in everything. So we want to say God is in everything. So God's in this table. I don't have. I have a. I have you, you buy God is in this room in the bed of Macbeth. Yeah, but how could that but be you, also but correct? You know, but you don't buy. He's in the rock. Right. You're right. Okay. So you have. What's your limit? Why are you limiting? It? Right. In. I don't. I'm not comfortable with the word in. God is in this room. Not only in this room. Yeah, what does in that mean? Everything. In episodes, in the rock, in the table, in the watch. He's in the watch too, and in your tie. Can't buy a tie like that. He's in the basic fundamental particle. So that's what it comes down to. So I want to have my cake and eat it. I want to be the raisin as well as the dough, which means that I could. It's if you tell me that God is the. Okay, so it's not physical. That's my limitations. When you say God's in the rock, it's too physical for me. So, that's too physical. And therefore, I have to come up with another formulation, which we have not yet come up with. We're going to. Somehow it's not. Because it's here, and not in this. It's a different issue. See, but don't you see, when you just point, you hit it really well, and you said it really well. Saying God is here is a physical concept, therefore I cannot accept that statement. But when then you deny that by saying, it doesn't mean God's physically here, then what is He? Here but not here. That I buy. Not here, because we say here, the implication is, association is physically here. So I can't buy that. It's not, it's not, God is not physically here, but He's here. That I buy. So we need to formulate, as we'll see a little bit later on, a little bit more carefully. Quantum demonstrates how physically difficult it is to pin building blocks matter. According to on personal principle, we know this, which like the heart of quantum theory, the position and velocity of the subatomic particles can help with the simultaneously. Not important for us because of the inherent indeterminability. Quantum physicists cannot predict a single definite result for such an observation. Why? Because the act of measuring itself affects the outcome. You are part, you by virtue of trying to measure where that particle is floating around in that particular atom, you're affecting it. By shedding light on it, you're pushing it in a certain direction and we don't know where it's going. That's the famous thing we did last year with Schrodinger's cat. That you, by looking at it, you're going to cause that cat to be dead or alive. You are affecting the outcome. Right? And we saw how difficult that was. 
the analogy that uh, Greenstein had given it was great. It's the child who's always going to, just to remind you, deny that he dirtied his pants. So he's going to see dirty pants, and you say, you dirtied your pants? He's going to say no to that. I didn't dirty my pants. You didn't dirty your pants? Yes, I didn't dirty my pants. Okay? Ask him a question. Did you dirty your pants? He says, no. Right? So you're going to take the no and put it in your hand. You have it now. You wrote down no and it's in your hand. Right? And you say, you need to formulate the question in the negative. How would I formulate in the negative? No, that's in the positive. Then the answer no would be correct. Is your pants dirty? No. Did? No. might put it simply are your pants clean are your pants clean so I'm going to get the kidney I got him I said no right when I asked the question did you dirty your pants he said no I wrote it down over here so he denied it he thinks he's really happy now so he said oh now I got to know here and I'm, this no is going to either make you guilty or innocent you go to your room without supper tonight or you're going to get free free uh, Funko Land the tickets to something because if whatever that is so now I got you you got to know here he says yeah I have a no okay whatever you say dad okay wrote it down are your pants clean? And I know, and whatever you answered, I have it always. I open it up, and what does it say? What does it say? It says yes. It says yes. And the analogy in Schrodinger's cat, your reading of it affected the outcome. That's what quantum physics is all about. The other analogy is you shoot the electron gun, and depending upon the backdrop, if it was a slit, then it becomes out as a as a as particles. If it's, a, if it's a cloud, it comes out as um, discrete units. A wave. Wave, right. So I shot the gun, and I then changed the backdrop. So what happens to that electron wave? It should have been either, it should have been particles, because I had my slits. No, I changed quickly the backdrop, and it became all of a sudden a wave. Uh, how can it change in the middle? I shot it out as a wave, and it became particles. That's, that's the indeterminacy of reality. We can't figure out what that reality is all about. In Schrodinger's cat, the cat dies or lives depending upon what you, in fact, did. But I, I just looked at it. What did I do? You're looking at it affects the change in the cat, which is very striking, very strange. The fact the kid, whatever we said, did you, your pants dirty? No. You took it down. Now you opened it up. You changed that. Now you read it to yes. That's the point of quantum physics, that you can't determine what really reality is all about. The very nature of the particle is uncertain. It behaves both as a particle and a wave. In a sense, it is neither until it's observed. The observed is based in the construction of reality, which is an absurd statement. Reality is that box of tissues without me doing anything with and without it. No, actually, don't we saying, I'm creating a box of tissues by my observation of it. If I didn't observe it, it wouldn't exist. It's ridiculous. But that's the nature of what we're talking about by quantum physics. So now, to us is the mystic who is fascinated by the intimate relationship of matter and energy though the mystical description is a different key material existence emerges out of ayin out of nothingness the pool of energy ultimately the world is not other than God for this energy is concealed within all forms of being the stone is God energy is concealed in all forms so, so this ayin which means nothingness out of nothingness came everything right? yeah it's okay Everything is ma- now. What's what's really nothingness? It's not nothing. It's God. It's the end. Self. It's the infinite. So 
So it's not really nothing. It's no thingness. It's no thing. God is no thing. But that is the way we describe God as ayin. The Kabbalists describe God as ayin. Nothing or no thing with a capital N. All that ultimately leads to creation. So therefore, all creation is made out of this substructure of no thingness, which we call God also. So therefore, everything, in fact, is made out of this, or God. Energy is concealed within all forms of being. We're not concealed. There could be no individual existence. Everything would dissolve back into oneness or nothingness. Oneness and nothingness are the same. Nothingness is oneness. It's all one. The light paradoxically reveals itself only by being concealed. As the 16th century Kabbalist could have put it, when powerful light is concealed and clothed in a garment is revealed. What do you mean? Though concealed, the light is actually revealed. How could it be? We're not concealed, it would not be revealed. What? It's like wishing to gaze at the dazzling sun. Its dazzle conceals it. You cannot look at its overwhelming brilliance. And when you conceal it looking through, through screen sunglasses, you can see it. Through its concealment, you can see it. I will not be harmed. So it is with emanations. By concealing and clothing itself, it reveals itself. God, in His infinite nature of nothingness or oneness, cannot be seen, cannot be perceived. When God is clothed through the physical forms, then you could see it. The brilliance, the dazzle, is covered. We cannot behold the infinite, but its power is displayed through everything that exists. Creation is a form of revelation. Oneness is not apparent, but it is real. Good. The next section is a very nice section. Because what really is idolatry? We read about it all the time. It's throughout the entire Bible. And yet, is it still with us? We generally say, no, people are not idolaters any longer. Why not? Because they're all uh, monotheists. Everybody's monotheists. No. What really is idolatry? God is the oneness of matter and energy, the process through which one is transformed into the other and the nothingness that embraces both. Of course, I don't like what he just said. My quote over here is, you dare define what God is. He's saying God is. Definition. I don't buy that. Go back away from this later on, as you'll see. Say God is oneness of matter, I'm not happy with that. It may be that God is beyond that. God is not simply the oneness of matter and energy. The process through which oneness is that all God is, I'm not happy with that. Nothingness may seem like a shocking name for God, but it falls logically from Judaism's command against idolatry. Show all the gods. It is rare these days to find people actually bound down to graven images. Am I going too fast? I'm okay. But we constantly constrict God within our various mental images and think that he or she is a particular form. He's right. Good. It's true. God is worshipped as mother or as father, as provider, judge, or ruler, or limiting. That's idolatry. This metaphors can be very effective, reassuring us, inspiring us to act ethically or religiously. But when the metaphor holds to a fixed image, we lose more than we have gained. Our worship of God becomes limited to the particular image we focus on. We reduce and even desecrate the infinite nature of God. God's really infinite beyond all designations, beyond father, judge, ruler, provider. As Fash Kabbalah said, in the 12th century, we have that God has an image, fashioning eyes will back down to them. Idolatry is as much a mental as it is a physical act. Pashut, we all agree. Ayin, nothingness, is natural to, to idolatry. Explodes the notion that God is an object. God's not an object. Ayin forces to surrender our comfortable, confining images. Melts them down. This nix of the Jews, this nothingness of the Jews, writes Paul Suppose the naked divinity without a cover. How can we think of, or speak of God without image or conceptions? We can't. Even I, nothing is a concept. The image it evokes may be vast. Limitless, limitless ocean, expanse of the outer space. But there are images nonetheless. The value of Ayin is that it helps us understand the relative nature of all images of God, including Ayin itself. I mean, it's a brilliant statement. 
say it again. The value of Ayn, nothingness, is that it sort of like pulls me back in to reality saying that God is not a fixed image. Helps understand uh, the relative nature of all images of God, including Ayn itself. So we have to really go beyond Ayn to find the true essence of God, which we'll do in a second. Images and names of God, and to approach the divine. Can't quite get us there. They keep us at a safe distance. These pictures and words indicate the reality, but cannot convey it. To encounter God directly, to leave names and images aside, good. We must renounce the doctrine of worshipping any particular image, even in a mental image. Want too much on a particular name. On the threshold of experience, we are challenged to let go of words, to attune ourselves to the sound of sheer silence. Call them from the context of Eliyahu Bahadakaramel. Right, so that's going beyond the name. Let's next page. The God of the Jewish Bible is a person. Described feminine. God describes as a heavenly patriarch, compassionate, irascible. Right, next page. God has such names as Shaddai, Elohim, Yukir. So a person that he is in love with the people of Israel, just of any other gods who's love. Conceiving of God as a person implies a relationship. Applies the gap. Is the divine personality is assumed to be separate from us and from all nature. Transcendent. Good. God did not emanate and become the world. No. God majestically, majestically spoke the world into being. The works of creation were made from nothing by you, not of you. You made it, but they're not of you. St. Augustine. Intimacy with God forms the core of spiritual life. Loving God with heart, soul, and force. Intimacy, closeness. But not of you. We're comfortable with St. Augustine. But, our relationship depends on the separateness of divine and human. That's really against what the Kabbalah is saying. Kabbalah is saying that we're all one. Oneness. We're all part of God. God's within. So actually we want both. For God to be both personal and intimate, as well as transcendent and beyond. Though I've created the image of God, we relate to, to each other as other. Without a personal God, there's no possibility of relationship with the divine. How can I relate to the boundless? The boundless includes and subsumes me along with everything else. Nothing is separate from infinity. The God of mystic is both personal and impersonal. We like this. In the personal mode, God becomes even more anthropomorphic than in the Bible. Yet the roots of the divine personality are embedded in nothingness and infinity. Almost two opposites. The personal God is born out of Ayin. Okay, now we come to the Sefirot, which again is not the usual way that we learn about God. He'll tell us that the Ayin is the crown. That's the crown. There's something beyond the ayin, which is the ansof, which is the true, beyond knowledgeable God. But the, we begin first with the crown, the ketib, the God wears, the ayin, nothingness, and it gives birth to Chokhmah and Bina. Bina is the feminine aspect, the womb, Kabbalah, wisdom, point, beginning. And then they feed fed into Chesed and Geburah, that's Deen, judgment. Right hand side is Chesed, love and grace. You need both of them together for the world to exist. And they form Tfirit or beauty which is also compassion, achamim, etc. And they give birth to Hod and Netzach, eternity, whatever. And then Yesod, the righteous one, gives birth to the world, Shekhinah. Now, this is reflective of God, but also reflective of what's known as Adam Kadmon, the primal man. Primal man does not mean Adam Harishon, but it means we are creating the image of God, the Kabbalah. So the image of God means that you superimpose human image on God, and that's what we all are. We are masculine, we are feminine. We are compassionate and powerful in strength, and you also... Womanly, I guess compassionate will be on that side. We are also, um, we have a feminine aspect as well. Let's see how he explains it over here. 
The mystics are reticent about the Ansof, which is fitting when speaking of the infinite, but they indulge in describing the tense if he ought. The various stages of God's inner life and the dynamics of divine personality. As a human has a personality, so too does God. Very striking. Sefirot depict God more graphically than we find anywhere in the Bible of Talmud. Not only does God feel respond and act with Sefirot, but they consider and address his divine body, because his arm legs and Here God is both he and she from the, from the union of the divine code bestows blessing upon the world. You know, you raise the question, where did the Kabbalah get this from? Right? Yeah, this is accurate description of what Kabbalah is all about. And yet, of course, the Kabbalists will tell you that this is only a metaphor. It's not true. It's not literal. It's only a metaphor to give us a sense of how this all works out. So don't think of this as true, only a metaphor. We've already counted the first Tzfidah Ayin, the definition of the Ayin of oneness, same as infinity. In fact, it was treated in Sof and Ayin as one and the same. From here, the other nights would emerge. Kabbalah Tzfidah is called Keter. It's a crown of the head of Adam Kronon, primordial Adam. This page. Do you have the next page? 50? According to the open church, Genesis, the human being is created in the image of God, the divine origin of your image. The divine origin of What does it mean you're in the image of God? Samuel King, what does it mean? We say ethically, spiritually, we say all kinds of things. He says no. Kavah says no. Really, literally are the image of God. The Sephirot and you are one imposed upon the other. Sephirot are the divine original of that image. The, myth, the mythical paragraph of the human being. Like architect of nature. Picture this cosmic tree growing down from its roots above, from the Keter to the highest Sephirot to the root of all roots. The depths of nothingness, that's Ayin, next Sephirot, the primordial point of Chokmah, wisdom. Point called beginning, Rashid. Marks the beginning of creation, Rashid Chomayat Hashem, beginning of creation, rather emanation, the flow of divine being. Prepare the Sephirah tree, Bachan, eventually years of existence, this point, space and time unfolds the singularity of the Big Bang, the the beginning of space time. From the singularity, the universe expands, from the primordial point, a circle expands. Bina, understanding, Bina is the womb, divine mother surrounding the primordial point, the cosmic seed of Chomayat, she can see the rest of the Sephirah, which was from her. As a woman does. Within Binah's perspective of God becomes a shape, then he turns it to God. And how odd we're going to say. It. You look at this and say, wow, this is absurd. As Azor reads the opening of Genesis, beginning through wisdom, the infinite created God. We had seen that, if you recall, six, uh, seven, eight sessions ago. Do you remember that, that line in the first section of the Kabbalah? Where it starts with infinite, and then we create Elohim. We create God. God's created and lives in the palace that that cosmic seed had given birth to. So we, we can't deal with this. We can't understand this. We don't want to deal with this. But it's from the Kabbalah. So we talked about Ketuch Ma'abina, Ked Ma'abina, Ketuch Ma'abina, Bina, she was brought to Chesed, Din, with the Gevura. The Pekas was right now, the arms of God, because of the Pekas, he was born in love and strict judgment, this invitation, balance, a balance achieved, which is symbolized by such a Vida, Tif'eret, beauty, Rahamin. A little strange, a little interesting, what that really means. If judgment is not by love, then it lashes out and threatens to destroy life. Here lies the origin of evil. Of course, Kabbalah spends a lot of time trying to understand what role is evil playing in the universe. It's called Strahara, the other side. Demonic is rooted in the divine. God is infinite, God is all, God is one. Evil does play a role, and that's the other side. To fit as the masculine trunk of the true spiritual body, called heaven, sun, king, blessed to see. Standing in the country of the host, and name for God. The next two Sefirot, Netzah, Hod, not too much known about them. Source of prophecy. Restored, the Nice Sefirah, put your life into the world. Restored is the Anas Mura, whatever you want. Okay, good. Let's skip the next page, because we want to get to the next page. You have the next page of meditation? Two, I stopped right there. 
No, I didn't. Oh, here it is. Oh, here it is. Okay, good. See? Okay, here's this. Here's this. And at least I want to get through this. And this there also. This next page. We'll try to get through a little bit more. Okay, so now, what he talks about in the section that we're skipping is mainly the feminine aspect of God, which is known as Shekhinah. And he goes into this whole entire issue trying to explain why does Shekhinah even have a feminine aspect to it? Where does it come from? Intimacy, accessibility, balanced by the oldest demeanor of the patriarchal God. Okay, so she transmits the flow of divine emanation. Okay, good. And you might have heard about Lilith. Not important for us. She, she's a leading cab- character of the Mesopotamia Kabbalah as well, which devotes more space to her than to any other Sephira. God cannot be adequately described in several masculine terms. Today, so that later. Good. Okay, okay good. Now, next is important. The multiple personality and mythical imagery of the Sephirah, God is stunning. Kabbalah insists that the figures of speech should not be taken literally. These are, and that these are organic symbols of a spiritual reality beyond normal comprehension. Good. Although we could say, but, what are they talking about? Sephiratic descriptions are attempted to convey something of the beyond. And becoming fixated in the image itself defeats the purpose. Because of idolatry. The of the Ansof, infinite, which is beyond the ayin, and the Sephirot seems dualistic. An impersonal infinite oneness of Ansof versus a personal embodied God who interacts only with the world and humanity, but also between himself and herself. Moreover, the multiplicity of the Sephirot seems to compromise the the absolute oneness of God. That's true. Notice how often before we pray, we will say, L'shem Yehud Kuchabrichu Shchenteh. What does that mean literally? You're praying now, L'shem, meaning for the purpose, Yehud, unification, God, Ushchenteh, the male and female aspects of God. So unify them as one. Right now they are disunified. There's almost a dualism over here. But not literally. We're not happy with this. As the iconoclastic of Sitri Kabbalistic Abraham Abu Lafi remarked, so we believe the Sephirot have outdone Catholic adherents in the, of the Trinity and turned God into ten. Correct. He's right. Kabbalistic that the Ensof and the Sephirot, the personal and personal, form a unity like a flame joined to a burning coal. Really, the Ensof, which is beyond the first crown, beyond the eye is the Ensof, the impersonal infinite. We can't have a relationship with the impersonal infinite. So therefore we have emanations which give us a personal sense of godliness. And they're a unity. They're flame joined to a burning coal. It's one with but separate from. They are its name and it is they. It is they and they are it. Those so if they don't appear independent, and multiple, they're essentially one waves on the surface of an ensof. So they're one. Waves on the surface of the ensof. Personality of God emerges from and leads back to Ensof the Boundless. To contemplating the Sifidot, one exposes the emotional psychological texture of God's various personality qualities, which is love, fear, and compassion. Now, from this point, it's not hard to understand where the Kabbalah got all this from. Because the Bible and Talmud does in fact present God with love, fear, compassion, anger, all of that. God's depression. So how can the infinite boundless be depressed? But it's a fifty book. God is said to his heart because of the evil of man. Where's God's anger coming from? From the infinite boundless, from the Ansof? No. Radis wants to say that all of these other sephirotic tree-like structure, all of this, reflects, so to speak, metaphorically speaking, these terms that describe God's emotional character. I think you said last week, you can't, uh, I think that's 
today's, uh, you, you quoted today's uh, Atara, the call. You can bring, you can bring Hashem down right. to his understanding. Okay. Into, into the physical. Right, correct. That's exactly what, what's going on. Exactly. You know, they, they brought the Kabbalists. The Kabbalists will try to have it take and eat it by saying, it's all metaphoric, it's not literal, but it gives a person both the sense, and this is really the key point, the personal God with whom you can have an intimate relationship with, but also, once you always keep in mind that really the Ansof is beyond boundless. God is not simply my buddy next door. He's not my co-pilot. His Ansof is infinite. But I can't write to the infinite. How do I love God who's in, how do I love God who's infinite and boundless? So, the Kabbalah attempts to mediate between those two. To be and not be. God is both Ansof and it's waves on the surface of the Ansof. <clears throat> the Sivra are not mere abstract concepts or divine metaphors. The Plurbal Kabbalah is some intricate literary game. They are the tools for meditation. Each serves as a focus of visualization, disclosing the depths of archetypal personality within God and the seeker. It's very striking. A contemplation is not an end in itself. In the words of Cotovero, the essence of the divine image is action. I contemplate and I do. The mystic is called upon to imitate God, to embody the Sifiro, to be gracious, rigorous, and compassionate. So here's the ethical thrust of the Kabbalistic system. Of course, not all Kabbalists will emphasize this ethical thrust. Some only emphasize the mystical meditation that's involved. Some will emphasize the theurgic, magical implications of this. This Kabbalah goes into multiple directions. Here, the Sefirot, here, for example, despite the well-being of your fellow creature, desire, here's the ethical implications of Kabbalah, desire the well-being of your fellow creature, eyeing his good fortune benevolently. Let's honor be as great to you as your own, for you and your fellow are one and the same. You are one and the same. So I command, love your fellow as yourself. Yourself is you. You are he. Desire was right for your fellow. You never denigrate him or wish to disgrace suffering or ruin. He feels bad for such suffering as if it were your own, because really it is your own. Rejoice of another's good fortune as if it were you were basking him. It's impossible to conduct yourself according to these causes constantly. Conceited. Accustom yourself to do little by little, such quality to attain the key to is humility, which is nothing which is the human counterpoint of the high Sfira, nothingness. If you're nothing, you're humble. So God's primary characteristic would be, beyond infinity, nothingness. Sfira functions as a ethical training ground as a systematic way of translating spiritual ideas into concrete action in the world. Same time, Sfira constitutes a mystical path, a ladder of ascent back to the One. Glimpsing its origin, the human soul yearns, we trace its root from here to infinity. The journey feels as a spiritual quest a journey of endless discovery, as many Kabbalists describe in some of their memoirs. Now, the Sefirot serve as a map of consciousness. Climbing and probing mystic union uncovers the rest of the being. Mystical and the ethical reinforce one another through a rhythm of going deep within the living mindfully in the material world. Going deep within oneself and living mindfully in the material Living mindfully is the key term. To experience spiritual and psychological wholeness by imitating and integrating the Sefirot to attributes. When you cleave to the Sefirot, the divine... Holy Spirit enters into you, into every sensation, into every movement. That's Kabbalah. Right? It's a quote. The path is not easy, and the sport shadows of our psyche must be encountered. And by knowing and understanding the dark underside of wisdom, spiritual secrets are fined. Good. Here, the top of the land approaches the source of the nation, Bina, Divine Mother, Shkoteshuva, return. In her, the ego returns to the womb of being. That can be held in thought, as indicated by another one of her names, which is who? This is great. The primal question serves focus of contemplation. Who am I? 
questioning eventually yields nothing that can be grasped intellectually or cognitively. Just an intuitive flash illuminating and disappearing as sunbeams play on the surface of water. As the wrote, thought reveals itself only through contemplating a little without content, contemplating sheer spirit. Once you have content, then you have paganized whatever thought it is. Contemplation is imperfect. You can understand and you lose what you have understood. The pondering of thought, the light of that thought suddenly darkens, vanishes, then returns and shines and vanishes again. No one can understand the content of that light. It's like the light that appears when water ripples in a bowl. Shining here, suddenly, I just finish this two lines, disappearing, then reappearing somewhere else. You think that you have grasped the light when suddenly it escapes, radiating elsewhere. You pursue it hoping to catch it, but you cannot. You cannot bring yourself to leave to keep pursuing it. There's all this Kabbalah, right? Quote, is the same with the beginning of emanation as you begin to contemplate it, it vanishes. Then reappears, you understand it, it disappears. Even though you do not grasp it, do not despair, the source is still emanating and spreading. That quote is from... 56. Um, like a flame was Sifi Yitzira, side, well, being felt that's from Kodavir, Tomah Devorah, Yosef Ben Hayim, and Moshe, from Kabbalah's perspective, and Moshe Dilion, come to the sense of Philot. Good. Okay, that's what it's about. So these are very standard Kabbalistic sources that tries to capture what really God is all about, the being itself, but also the being beyond being. Can you have either one? If I only have the being beyond being, then I have the insult, then I have nothing. If I only have the personal relationship to God, then I have a pagan frozen image. Neither one is adequate to really live a truly spiritual life. You need both. You have to see God as utterly transcendent, and the Kabbalist, one would say, never saw themselves as going beyond all previous understanding of what God is. This is what guys, one would think. They are traditional. They didn't create something new. To us, to our ears, this is new. Who are we kidding? They would say no. When you say God is Kadosh, 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 what are you saying? Infinite. Transcendent. Lugas Kadosh is imminent. Exactly what we're saying. We've put it with, through some kind of more fancy, mythical, slash, metaphoric, slash, descriptive, Imagery. But it's not it. It's really saying the same thing. It's interesting why the Kabbalists, which first come onto the scene in the 12th century de Leon, 13th century de Leon, although percolating throughout all of Jewish thought, there have been people with mystical inclinations. Going back to the Gemara Chagiga, which we discussed once before, you had four people enter into paradise, paradise, mystical illumination. You have a whole literature of Tamir called Hechal literature of going into the Hechal, divine sanctuary. Mysticism in all religions appears. It's part of the mind of the brain that seeks to understand, that seeks to go beyond the physical material and that absolutizes the infinite beyond all comprehension and yet needs to be brought back to have a personal God to relate to. So it has both. It's interesting, those who only think in terms of the logical categories, let's say, of the Rambam, metaphysics, very strictly defined, 
They're not comfortable. Ram makes no mention at all of anything Kabbalistic. Although many of the Kabbalists adopt him as one of their own because he is and has certain statements about light illuminating and flashing, <coughs> which is one of their images. In the Sakhtamata, when in the Bukhim, he does speak about that light that all of you grasp understanding of God and then you back away and it becomes dark again. Well, should have been who had continuously flashing lights of what God is and then it was much more, much more limitedly dark for Moshe. He's Moshe. We just get a flashing light and then it's dark again. We're in the dark most of the time. But the Raman has a number of different other concepts that seem to push him. They want to see him in a Kabbalistic mystical light. But those who studied Ram say, no. He had Aristotelian elements. He had Neoplatonic elements. The Neoplatonism is a very similar system as Kabbalah. Plotinus was a student, great-great-grand student of Plato and spoke about infinite, the one, the perfect one, perfect one emanating, creating a world. All this sounds very Kabbalistic. It is. If you read the seven Aeneids of Plotinus and then subsequently the literature of it called the Neoplatonic School of Thought, Neoplato, Neoplatonic School of Thought, with Plato, just became, was based on his philosophy and then developed it, it's very Kabbalistic. It's very much a person experiencing mystical visions, ascent to the One, which is a Neoplatonic thought as well as a Kabbalistic thought, as we had seen over here. So, in what is this all rooted? One would say it's rooted in a personality or in a mind. In the same way that, let's say, you have the Enlightenment, and especially the English philosophers, Hume, let's say, and beyond Hume, John Locke, rationalist, strict definers of all reality, very clear structured systems. Then you have, on the other side of that, those who are the, usually in the continent, usually in France and other, the existentialists who came in the aftermath, who don't see all this so clear and reason doesn't get you very far. Rather, it's intuition, it's emotion, it's, something beyond the intellectual grasp which captures reality or captures the essence of the human being. The best way that they formulate this distinction between the classical, rational Greek school of thought and existential is that, very simple, Aristotle, Greek, classical definition of terms, logic, will tell you that the essence of human being precedes existence. The essence, who you are, intellectually, precedes your existence. You are your human being, defined as a thinking, feeling person. And then you live life. Existentialists will say the opposite. That your existence precedes your essence. What does that mean? Your existence precedes your essence. The opposite of Aristotle or the classical Greek rational schools of thought. They're saying that you live life and guess what your essence is it's not fixed and formed and shaped prior to life as Aristotle would say your experiences will define your essence at the end of life who you are is what you lived life through so your essence comes after your whole existence exactly the opposite for Aristotle if you know what's right you do what's right Plato you know what's right you do what's right intellectually you follow the course of a rational human being you are, in his words, the acorn which of necessity has to become the oak tree. 
contained in the acorn is the oak tree. Right? Can the acorn become a cow? No. It can only become an, an oak tree. So to the human being. Contained within the breath of the human being is his essence, which is a rash, which you will call a rational being, which develops as the acorn develops into an oak tree. So to the human being develops into a rational creature. Existentialism is not happy with that. Rationalism doesn't capture who I am, what I am all about. Rather, what I am at the end of my life is what I define as my essence. So existence, your life precedes your essence. And at the end of your life, now we know who this person was. That's existentialism. Now you wonder, whatever the forms are, where does this come from? What brings forth a thought, a feeling, an idea? Especially one that captures a continent, captures a whole generation. Today, the prevailing philosophies are existentialism, is one, where nothing has a definite meaning, where love is much more significant than, than, than thought. And that's in the continent. What took place? Is it external or is it internal? Is it what the European community experienced 150 years ago, which led to the rise of existentialism? Kierkegaard, one of the great Protestant theologians, the first existentialist, religious existentialist, trying to capture, understand time as flowing. What does that mean? What do you do with it? So the existentialist says, presumably, one can argue, it's not something within the person, you could argue and tell me, but rather it could be environmental, it could be experiential. Something, when, you, when you're madly in love, then, and love does not, is not captured by the mind, and it makes no sense, so, oh, I'm in love. It's an intuitive, intuitive grasp. I love you. That's what it is. It's not logical, rational. So, right, infinite. God, right. So the, so, the existentialist sees the world and either environmentally or experientially or you may want to say internally that the mind also plays that kind of elusive tricks on you and that you emphasize the mystical rather than the rational, existential, rather than the classical and who knows or some interaction between that person at that period of time Kierkegaard rebels against the rationalism of Hegelianism where everything is a slow gradual unveiling of the divine spirit rational logic the logos divine mind is unveiled in Hegel's philosophy of history this is what are you crazy you don't see any of that that's not what it's all about There's much more at stake and involved over here. You've put human being and all of history into these little categories of a wave of revelation of the, un, the unveiling of the divine essence. That's what Hegel would say. And Kierkegaard says, what are you, crazy? It doesn't make sense to me. If you, if you love and you feel your passion, you change, you decide, you will, you don't will. It's will. Nietzsche, whose will to power was an existential reaction against the classical constraining Greek modes of life. Because for Aristotle, you were a human being who developed. So you were a human being. And you don't know what was right all the time. Nature said he exploded that. That's, it's absurd. He says, is much more than that. Human can become what he called an overmensch, the superman, to become beyond all morality, beyond all ethics, to be more than man. And in fact, in Nietzsche's view, to become God. He, of course, denied God's existence, Nietzsche. And of course, it's all true that Nazism, which this smells of, perverted its teachings. Nietzsche would say, just as a last closing point, is that 
the person who becomes beyond morality is not moral because he's born into the emasculating Christian tradition, which he called emasculating Christian classical tradition, constrained by Christian morality, horrible, evil, God is dead, constrained by society, absurd, horrible, constrained by reason or thought, horrible. To be who you are, he, this man exploded with his creativity, with his ideas, with his thoughts, not concerned by anything. And of course he ended up in a sane asylum. He was crazy. At the end he was crazy. He ended up, because of syphilis, I say, as a crazed person. But he's saying the same thing. So where did he come from? Breaking the bonds of history, breaking the bonds of all that had come before him. Where does it come from? It's a mind. It's reacting against other movements. It's trying to constrain, perhaps, this certain kind of a mind, a genius. Romantic music. Where does it come from? Why did Beethoven, all of a sudden, contrary to the classical forms of Bach, let's say, or Handel, also Beethoven, and explodes it all with romantic music? Because you can't constrain me. You can't tell me to follow this and become and write my great pieces. There's much more there than you're telling me. I could take this instrument and I could do things that nobody else could do. Somewhere beyond the classical, beyond the normative. There are people that just invent and discover, not only in terms of inventions, but in terms of ideas and thoughts and feelings and emotions, and that's the existential. So coming back full circle over here, that also is the mystical. It's in every religion. Whether it's an Islamic religion, it's called the Sufis, or in the Christian religion, you have mystical visions, images. Where does it come from? Within the mind as it probably interacts with society at large. And therefore, born of that is a new idea. Kabbalah is an old yet new idea of how to conceive of God. Sorry? Okay, so that's where we're ending over here. Next week, by the way, I just want to mention to you that I'll be at the Shabbaton so far, as far as I know. Right? YMD, once a year, February. I, 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 I...